Good evening, everybody. So when we say that we want to be in harmony, it doesn't mean that everybody does exactly the same thing. It means that there is a welcoming spirit among all the participants. When we do our fortnightly posada, the sangha's confession and restoration of precepts, one of the first questions that is asked is, is the uh, assembly in harmony? Is the sangha in harmony? Because if the sangha isn't in harmony, uh, we're not allowed to do the confession and restoration of precepts. So what really makes a group of people in harmony? I would say when you're dealing with a spiritual community, the foremost thing is that everybody is going in the same direction, meaning everybody has the same motivation. And so that's why before teachings every week, we spend time cultivating our motivation so that we all share the motivation of aspiring for full Buddhahood because we want to be of the utmost benefit to sentient beings. And when a group of people share that motivation, even when it's contrived bodhicitta, that group is in harmony in a very profound way. It's very different than how a group is in harmony when they go to the pub or go to the movies or go to work or whatever. So we all contribute to that harmony of sharing the same motivation, the same aspiration by ourselves generating bodhicitta. So let's do that. And then we will be in harmony for the teachings. So many years ago, I remember seeing uh, Sangha Rinpoche and Lama Yeshe together. And this was the previous Sangha Rinpoche, not not the one you met. Um, And Sangha Rinpoche was sitting in a chair and Lama Yeshe was kneeling by his side, looking at him and they were discussing something. And 
the um, that image is very much imprinted in my mind because you could tell there was some incredible connection between the two of them. And I thought, what's that connection? And it was bodhicitta. You know, they share that same aspiration, that same motivation. And so they were connected like that. They didn't have to say it to each other. Yeah. And in our guru yoga practice, you know, there's at one point where the, the guru dissolves into us. Yeah. And at that point, we think that our mind becomes like the Guru Buddha's mind. So what is that mind? Yeah, what do we generate at that time when we do the practice? We generate bodhicitta and, you know, wisdom realizing emptiness, as much as we have of either of those. And so that's how our minds uh, become one. Yeah with the deity, with the guru, with the Buddha. Okay. So it's it's something to think about and to really use in our practice. Uh, sometimes we're very far away from uh, our teachers. We're far away from the sangha, you know. And instead of feeling, oh, I'm all alone, I'm isolated, nobody understands me here, they all think I'm crazy, You know, when you do your practice and, you know, depending if you're doing guru yoga or deity yoga or if you're meditating on the Buddha, you know, whenever that figure dissolves into you, uh, then uh, your mind and their mind are, you know, you think that those realizations are, are the same. So you really try and feel like you have the same realizations they have. And when you do that, then you don't feel lonely anymore. Okay? So you don't need somebody kind of holding your hand and saying, I'm here and I'll call you every day at 10 o'clock. You know, if you do your, your practice every day, then that feeling of closeness is always there. Okay? So very, very helpful, because we never know in this life what kind of situation we're going to find ourselves in. You know, when I think of the uh, Tibetan monks, you know, pre-1959, just kind of going along in their life, you know, there's problems, but, okay... And then, you know, like this, they wind up having to cross the Himalayas and go into refuge. And all they had with them was their teacup, which is a monk's, or used to be a monk's most prized possession that you carry everywhere with you. It's in your donka, and you don't separate from your teacup. Okay? The wooden ones, you know? So... uh yeah, so like that, they had to go into refuge. And uh, many of them who remained in Tibet were imprisoned. But, you know, they, they carried their practice with them. They did retreat. They did recitation. They did all their practices just without moving their lips, without any material things, you know. And... Uh, and their practice was very much alive in them. Yeah. 
So even though they're, you know, they were separated from their monasteries, their teachers, everything. So just something, you know, to remember in our lives. Okay, so there was one question from last week. That is a very good question, okay? I wondered a lot about this question for a long time. So can there be such a thing as liking or preference without some small degree of attachment? Do realized beings have no preferences or are their preferences different to those of ordinary beings? Yeah, because sometimes we get the feeling, you know, attachment, you know, get rid of attachment. So we've been through this before. I'm attached. I'm like, a, you know, a log. So, you know, I'm sitting there and whatever. Yeah. You can give me anything you want to eat. You can say anything in the world to me. I don't care, you know, about what's going on in the world. It's all the same to me. I'm not attached to any of it. Does that sound enlightened? (laughs) That sounds like somebody who's, you know, quasi-dead, doesn't it? Yeah. So eliminating attachment is eliminating that clinging to something, that I, this is so wonderful, I've got to have it. Okay, So it doesn't mean that you see everything having the same qualities, because things have different qualities. Okay, when, when you know, I mean, that's why you try and eat a balanced meal, because the food all has different nutrients. We don't just say, oh, well, it's all the same, so all I'm going to eat is chocolate, you know, and remain healthy. Yeah. So, no, things have different qualities. We can evaluate things. We can assess things. See, things have different purposes. Yeah. So we can make choices and we can have preferences, but without clinging to those things as this is so wonderful, I've got to have it. And if I don't have it, my world's going to fall apart. Okay. So, yeah, there's different preferences where, you know, when you need to sign a document with blue ink, uh, you pick up a pen with blue ink. You don't pick up a pen with black ink that so that when you submit the form, they're going to send it back to you because they say it looks like it was photocopied and we want the original. So, yeah, so you, you prefer the blue pen. You know, you, you make wise decisions based on things, qualities, but you're not, you know, in this state of mind where I, I've got to have it. And if I don't, then, you know, the whole world's going to fall apart. And we get that way when we're attached to things, don't we? Now, when we're really attached, we will do 
almost anything to get what we're attached to. And then cover it up by saying, somebody else told me to do this. Yeah. Do you ever use that one? Yeah. Somebody says, why did you do that? Oh, well, I asked so-and-so and they told me to do it. So, yeah, we're, we're not attached to, to these kinds of things, yeah. But we know how to make good decisions, yeah. A bodhisattva better know how to make good decisions because we're banking our whole, you know, spiritual progress on them, you know, on Buddhas and bodhisattvas and on receiving correct teachings from them. And... You know, if, if, you know, they can't make good decisions, and uh, then it's going to be a mess. Yeah. Okay. So I thought that was a very good question because, you know, sometimes it does make it sound like you can't have preferences. And then sometimes, you know, when you prefer something, I mean, we do sometimes have attachment to what we prefer. Yeah, it's like, okay, I prefer chocolate, that's okay. But milk chocolate or dark chocolate? Yeah, which chocolate, which chocolate do you like better, milk or dark? Oh, goodness, okay. Who likes dark chocolate best? Who likes milk chocolate best? Who likes white chocolate best? Okay. Yeah. Now, are you attached to the kind of chocolate you like? (laughs) Okay. So that's attachment. Yeah. When you um, pick up a plate to go get your chocolate, does, you know, the plate matter so much? Because they all are in the same stack of plates. Uh, Well, it might if you're really fussy. uh, You know, that plate is chipped on one corner. You know, well, okay, you might cut your hand because something's chipped. So you might, you know what you do? You put it back in the same (laughs) pile so that somebody else will pick it up. No, you don't do that if you're going to be afraid of getting hurt. You make it so that nobody else gets hurt. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> you know, it's funny the way our mind works, isn't it? Yeah. I, I uh, you know, kind of got out of that danger, but uh, it doesn't matter if somebody's coming after me. You know, leave it to them to figure out. Okay. Okay. So we'll continue. I think we're on 180, craving according to the Pali tradition. Okay. So do you crave what to know, what to know what the Pali tradition says about craving? Okay. So craving for sense pleasure. Remember, we went through the different kinds of craving for the, um, you know, for the Sanskrit tradition. So it's the same ones 
for the uh, Pali tradition. But, so craving for sense pleasure is described as the same in the Sanskrit tradition. Okay, cross that one off your list. We all know what craving for sense pleasure is. Okay, been there, done that, forget it. Now go get some ice cream. <laughs> okay, but uh, we're not craving for sense pleasure, are we? Okay. So often, uh, just to clarify, we may think, oh, well, praise isn't sense pleasure. Status isn't sense pleasure. Sense pleasure is just what I see, what I hear, what I smell, taste, and touch. Okay? But actually, when you think about it, how do you get status, for example, without relying on any of your senses? How do you know you have status in a group if if you can't see or hear or smell or taste or touch. You don't know, do you? Yeah. There are certain things that you sense that then you impute, oh, I have status. Same with being attached to to praise. Yeah. You, we don't know that we are getting praised unless we hear sounds or read a letter in case in that case we're seeing the colors of the paper and the ink okay so don't think oh i don't have much sense pleasure attachment because your big attachments are, are you know are things that well i don't see them as just you know praise and and uh, status, reputation. No, knowing you have those, getting those, all depend on, you know, what your your sense consciousnesses are perceiving. Okay? And so we know how to manipulate our actions to get other people, so that other people perceive those our actions through their sense consciousnesses. And then they impute, oh, this person is valuable or important or whatever. And then they praise us or they give us a special chair. Yippee. Um, you know? Um, yeah, and we see that through our sense consciousnesses and we're, we crave that and we're attached to that. Okay. Yeah, I remember uh, once I was uh, reading my book, and instead of saying praise, they said, you hear sweet, ego-pleasing words. Yeah. Sweet, ego-pleasing words. Ooh, I like those. Better than chocolate. Yeah. Do Do you like praise better than chocolate? Yeah, because after you get the praise, you only hear the sound for a while, you know, like five seconds, but you can remember it and repeat it to yourself again and again. They said, I'm so wonderful. They said, I'm so intelligent. They said, I'm so wonderful. That's your mantra, okay? (laughs) (laughs) You know? 
and you you repeat it and you dream about it and everything. Yeah. But actually, the sweet ego-pleasing words didn't last so long. Yeah. It's quite interesting. Watch how... How pleasurable is the actual experience versus how pleasurable is your memory and being able to remember that experience or how pleasurable is your, um, what do you say, like before it happens, how you think it's going to happen, your expectation. Yeah. And check, you know, how much correlation is there between what you imagine before or after the actual experience and what you actually experience. Yeah. So this is, uh, I used to do this kind of thing when I, when I taught low rig and, um, you know, to find out the difference between a sense consciousness and a conceptual consciousness. Yeah, so you have your piece of chocolate there. Yeah, and you look at it. And then you imagine what that chocolate tastes like. Yeah. You just sit there and you imagine what it tastes like. You got it? Yeah. And then you put it in your mouth and you taste it. And you see, you know, did it taste like you imagined? And was it as good as what you imagined? Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Because one is the sense sense experience. The other is a conceptual mind, a memory. Okay. I mean, why do you think you're, I mean, you're in retreat. You know how your mind goes off into... All sorts of things. Yeah. Why does the mind go off into all sorts of things? Well, it's amusing. So you'll even go into negative things because it gives you something to think about. But, you know, we mostly daydream about positive things, don't we? Yeah. So we'll daydream about the positive things for a while. And then we'll think, oh, but I don't have them because something's wrong with me. And then we'll daydream about all that for <laughs> a while. And, and we're still sitting there and nothing's actually changed outside. But emotionally, we've gone, woo, and whoa. <laughs> yeah. And nothing's happened outside. Okay. So very very interesting to, to watch, you know, the sense pleasure and the memory, you know, or the expectation too. Okay. So craving for existence seeks rebirth in any of the three realms. Okay. So when it says existence, it means existence in samsara. Okay, I want to be reborn in samsara. Now, of course, nobody in their right mind says that. Okay, but that's the point. We're not in our right minds because we think samsara is great. Yeah, 
And so we want to be reborn in samsara. As a kid, when I heard about heaven, heaven sounded so boring. Yeah, did heaven sound boring to you? It was so boring to me. I had no, you know, wish for heaven. Yeah. So sometimes you hear, oh, nirvana. Yeah, it's, it's, it's peaceful. You know, you're just in your meditation and you don't see any conventionalities. And then our mind goes, oh, <laughs> that sounds really boring, you know, because I, I want some sense pleasure. It makes my life exciting. And also with sense pleasure, then I know I exist. And, and then... I remember one uh, one public talk. Somebody asked his holiness. They said, "Well, we all want to be happy, but don't we need suffering too? Because you know, when we suffer, then we know better what happiness is. So, don't we? You know, isn't suffering good?" <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, his holiness was saying, well, <laughs> um, yeah, don't you need suffering to feel pleasure? He said, well, maybe my life isn't as exciting as some people's life. I don't suffer a lot, but I also have happiness. So I'm content with not going to either extreme. Yeah. Of course, we're sure that he has another kind of happiness, totally. Yeah. But, you know, in our samsaric mind, we cannot think of any other kind of happiness that would be greater than sense pleasure, you know, which includes status and reputation and power and all of that. Yeah, and so we crave it, especially you know at the time of death, fearing losing our body. If I lose this body, who am I going to be? What am I going to be? I'm going to just evaporate into nothingness, and that is intolerable, totally intolerable. And so that's you know one of the big things that some people freak out about at death time. And that's why so many people fear death, because they think that they will just become nothing. Okay. So craving for existence seeks rebirth in any of the three realms. It accompanies the view of permanence or eternalism, or I call it absolutism. Yeah which adheres to the notion of a permanent, unitary, independent self or soul that continues on unchanged after death. Okay. So that that craving to exist, yeah, it accompanies and it is based on that uh, clinging, that thought, that belief that there is a permanent, unified, 
you know, um, independent I or a self-sufficient, substantially existent one, you know, either one or an inherently existent one, but something that is me, okay, that continues on. And in the case of, of the absolute view, um, absolutism, you know, this is, is something that is permanent and doesn't change. And, you know, I mean, it's the soul. Hmm? Okay. So most societies and religions throughout history have held an eternalistic or absolutist view of one kind or another. And such a view is deeply ingrained in people who were taught as children that there is a permanent soul. And this, you know, although it's deeply ingrained, this is an acquired affliction. This is not an innate one. Yeah. So acquired afflictions can be very powerful. We shouldn't just kind of brush them away. Oh, that's not innate. It's, you know, if the acquired ones are that powerful, imagine how innate, how powerful the innate ones are. Okay. Then craving for non-existence accompanies the nihilistic view. Okay. So when we, we always hear the two extremes, when you want the middle way, when you're trying to develop the correct view of emptiness, you want the middle way, which is free of the two extremes of absolutism, yeah, which if to pratsangikas means um, inherent existence, and nihilism, which means total non-existence. Okay. So craving for non-existence accompanies the nihilistic view, which believes that when the body ceases to function after death, the self or person is totally annihilated. There's that much clinging to the body, that much identity with the body that, you know, if I'm separated from this body, it means I don't exist. Yeah. And that kind of craving, which brings on the clinging, you know, for another body, that is what makes the karma ripen and propels us into another rebirth. Okay. So this view of craving for non-existence or nihilism may arise in someone who falls into despair or cynicism and concludes that since death is inevitable and everything ceases at death, it is pointless to prepare for future lives or seek liberation. Okay, so if you have that kind of view, you know, at death, there's nothing. There's nothingness. So why should I keep good ethical conduct? Yeah, as long as I don't get caught by the police, you know, I'm good to go because uh, I won't have to face any results of my actions after I die, and I'll just avoid, you know, getting caught this life, and that's fantastic. Okay, so it, it could be somebody with that kind of cynical idea or somebody who 
gets very, very depressed and just says, my life is hopeless and, you know, I should just end it. There's no meaning in my life. There's no hope in my life. My life is miserable. I should kill myself and stop the misery. Okay, Because they think that after death, there's no continuity of the mind. Yeah. And that's what they're craving. They're craving that kind of non-existence, which they don't get. Yeah, they don't get at all. This view may also arise in someone who adheres to a materialistic doctrine that negates any existence after death. Thinking that total obliteration of existence is peaceful, such a person craves to cease completely at death. So there's many different ways to crave non-existence, many different factors that could motivate it. All these forms of craving are manifestations of ignorance. A monk once asked the Buddha, who craves? Good question. Who craves? The Buddha replied that this question was not suitable. I think it's a good question. Buddha said it's not suitable. Rather than try to isolate a self that craves, it is appropriate to investigate what is the condition for craving. Okay. So why do you crave? What sparks craving? What's the condition for craving? Yeah, feeling. Since craving arises dependent on feeling, we need to apply mindfulness and introspective awareness and wisdom to our feelings, observing them as they are, and doing our best not to react to them with any of the three types of craving. Hmm? So you just feel the feeling, you know, and don't make up any stories about it. Like, I can't stand this, or I want more, or whatever, okay? Okay, so then the reflection. The first point is the space between feeling and craving is a weak spot in the 12 links. If we can learn to experience pleasant and painful feelings without reacting to them with craving, like craving for sense pleasure, for existence, for non-existence, we can cease the production of formative karma, the second link. And then second, observe how easily and habitually each type of craving arises in response to a particular feeling. Yeah. This is very good to do during the break times. You know, as you're walking from one place to another during our meals, whatever, when you see different people. And then three, practice simply experiencing the feeling without craving it for, for it to last longer or to cease immediately. Cultivate wise equanimity 
not ignorant indifference to feelings. Okay, so we've got to figure out what is wise equanimity and what is ignorant indifference. Yeah, the ignorance indifference is, I don't care. Yeah, the wise equanimity is, okay, this is what it is, and I can study it and learn something from it without my mind sticking to it, yeah, without craving more of it, without craving for it to go away. Good, uh, this is good to practice in relationship to the weather, too, yeah, when it's too hot, when it's too cold, when it's raining. Okay. Now, the third, uh, I mean, sorry, the ninth link, clinging, or upadana. Sometimes this one is translated as grasping, but um, the Sanskrit Pali word is different for this, uh, you know, this word than for what we usually translate as grasping, for example, in self-grasping or grasping inherent existence or something. So I thought it better not to use the word grasping here. I mean, the English word grasping would apply, but then you get really confused. What's the difference between grasping here and grasping an inherent existence? You know, and they're, they're two different words in Sanskrit and Pali. Because they're two different things. Okay, so clinging is attachment that is the strong increase of craving. So if you think craving is bad, yeah. Uh, when you crave things and you can't get what you want, what happens? What do you feel then? Yeah, or what kind of, yeah, what kind of emotions does craving, yeah, arise? In addition, you know, you have the emotion of craving. But what else arises when you're actively craving something? Irritation. Hmm? Frustration. Confusion. Anxiety, impatience, fear, desperation, yeah, dissatisfaction. Yeah. So it's interesting because when we're craving something, you know or when craving is increased to its clinging, one part of our mind feels very excited and very eager because we want to get this, whatever it is we're craving or clinging to. But look at all the other things that come up. Yeah. It seems like feeling attached to something is happiness, but interspersed with all those moments of 
happiness and, and anticipation and giddiness because I want this and I'm going to get it, you know, is all this other stuff that is not very pleasant at all, isn't it? Yeah. Did you ever think about that? Did you ever notice that? We only notice that when we stop feeling giddy and happy with attachment. But while we're feeling the attachment, we don't say, oh, this is going to be a downer at the end of it. (laughs) Yeah. No, this isn't going to be a downer. I'm going to get what I want. And, you know, and because I want it and I have this image of what it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. What my actual experience is going to match my image or be better than my image. Yeah. And so you start watching that what you expect something to be, and if it's as good as you thought it was going to be or not. Yeah? And how do you feel afterwards? I hate my, I ate my chocolate, <laughs> and now I feel sick. <laughs> yeah. Or I ate my chocolate, oh God, you know, my arteries are hurting already. <laughs> you know, I vowed I would not eat that much chocolate again, and look what I did. Uh, <laughs> okay. So clinging is a, is attachment that is a strong increase of craving. As it becomes increasingly evident that the aggregates of this life will be forfeited, craving gives rise to clinging, strong attachment for new polluted aggregates. While a person is dying, he may have an illusory appearance of his next life, and where he will be reborn. Even if someone will be reborn in an unfortunate realm, the illusory appearance of that place will be agreeable. He craves birth there, which leads to clinging to be born there. This nourishes the karmic seed previously placed on the causal consciousness so that the karma is transformed into the link of renewed existence. Okay, so while you're dying, yeah, you're still breathing, the breath hasn't stopped, but your senses are absorbing, the elements are earth, water, fire, and air, losing their ability to sustain the consciousness. Yeah. But there's still some kind of, you know, conceptual thought there going on. Then there can be uh, an image of a place that looks really desirable. Yeah. Or a kind of body that looks really desirable. And you're not thinking really clearly when you're dying. Yeah, you're not thinking oh, I'm having an illusory appearance and uh, that's going to look really nice, but I better really check out, you know, what the hotel's going to be like before I move in. 
Yeah, before. Yeah. Uh, you know, you don't think that. It's just, oh, it looks good. I'm going there. Okay. And so that causes the karma from the second link karma to start to ripen to produce its result. Yeah, its result being the tenth link. Okay, so remember last week I was saying, you know, um, let's say you've created karma to be born in the hot hills, and at the time when you're dying, it's cold. And you think, oh, I, you know, gee, I want to be warm and cozy. And you see the, I have an image of the hot house and it looks so toasty. You know, I want to be reborn there. And then the mind gravitates towards that. Yeah. Now we might say, well, how stupid. Why would somebody do that? But, you know. I look at our cats, their mind, they, they were, they, they, the Tibetans say that the animals that hang around the monasteries are usually monastics that didn't keep their precepts very well. So they have some affinity for the Dharma. They want to be there. Yeah. But they don't, they have negative karma from not keeping their precepts well. Okay. So our kitties, you know, let's say this is the case with our kitties. I'm only making this up. Don't get offended, kitties. Yeah. Um, you know, but when they were dying, then like, oh, a cat body looked really good. Yeah. And we need to be careful, too, because when we're dying, we may say, Oh, I want something nice and warm that understands me to hold on to. I want a kitty to curl up beside me. And that makes us attracted towards that realm. Okay? So, or you you could think of somebody who dies in the middle of a war. Yeah? And uh, what keeps you going in war? Fear and anger. So you die with fear and anger. You want retaliation. Yeah? Somebody is coming after you. You want to stop them to protect yourself, but you also want to retaliate for how they've harmed your buddies. Uh So your mind is revved up with animosity, and that could make a karma to be born in, you know, the the other hell realms. Okay, so similarly, in terms of taking a fortunate rebirth, the dying person is attracted, for example, to an appearance of a precious human life. Craving and clinging arise for that, causing the seed of a virtuous karma to ripen and bringing the link of renewed existence for this fortunate rebirth. So this is why, you know, when we're with people who are dying, that we say to them, you know, take a precious human rebirth, be reborn in the pure land. You know, think of your teachers, think of the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, think of Bodhicitta, remember emptiness. You know, you, you say this thing to them while they're dying. Yeah. Or you read 
uh, different prayers, inspirational prayers that direct our mind on how to think about something. Yeah. So that because uh, if you have a friend who's dying, you know, they need, they can need help uh, of you directing your mind to tell them what to think about, where to go. Okay. So remember that. Because sometime you will be in a situation where you're with somebody who's dying and you don't want to sit there and go, what do I do now? Yeah. So here's what you do. You know, and that, that is what really being a, a Dharma friend is. Uh, what if the person is not Buddhist? Then you talk in terms of whatever uh, religion they follow. And if they don't follow any religion, you just talk about, call up your kind heart, call up your compassion, you know, go on to your next life with, uh, you know, without fear, with a feeling of, of compassion and trust and love, you know. Yeah, be skillful. Yeah, don't be like that doctor in Singapore who I told you about who was trying to convert that person when he's dying. You don't do that. I'm wondering about the, um, the aspiration to be reborn in the Pure Land, and it's also activated by craving and clinging mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, for if you're an ordinary person... It's activated by craving and clinging for, you know, because that's what makes the samsaric karma ripen. But your mind is directed towards rebirth in the pure land. That's for like, uh, you know, if you want to be reborn in Amitabha's pure land. Of course, it's better if you don't crave and cling. But Amitabha made this special condition that ordinary beings can be reborn in, in his pure land. No, but other pure lands, Vajrayogini's pure land, you're, you're, you can't go there if you have craving and clinging. Yeah. The craving and clinging is an affliction. They are afflictions. Yeah, but all afflictions are not negative. Okay. Like ignorance and view of a view of the transitory um, view of a personal identity. Yeah. Those are, they're afflictions, but they are not negative. Because when we create virtuous karma, we still have ignorance, we still have self-grasping, but we are, have a virtuous uh, uh, mental, other virtuous mental factors that are manifest. Yeah, this craving and clinging, I think it's, Yeah, but it doesn't, maybe it's different at the time of death because it doesn't say anything here about it being negative because, you know, if it were negative at the time of death, then nobody could ever get a, a, a good rebirth. So it can't be that at the time of death, the, you know, in, in our lifetime, sure, when we're craving for sense pleasure, That's creating negative karma. But these three kinds of craving, you know, and when we come to the different kinds of clinging, 
Yeah. Remember, some of them are explained in terms of the, the 12 links and how they happen. And some are explained in just our regular life and how they manifest. Yeah. So I would think those when they manifest in our regular life would be negative, but you know, not at the time of death. Otherwise, yeah. Yeah, then how do you get a virtuous rebirth if you're an ordinary being? Because I think what you're craving and clinging here, I think it, it sounds to me very much like the view of a personal identity. Yeah, where you're holding to the eye. Your main concern is not, I want to take my clothes with me. Yeah, or I want to take my diploma with me or something like that. Yeah, it isn't for, it's for, it's craving and clinging for the existence of I. So this process occurs when a person is actively dying while the mind still has coarse recognition and the person can recall things. From the perspective of the death process described in Highest Yoga Tantra, craving and clinging occur prior to the white appearance, while the coarse mind is still functioning. When the coarse mental aggregates absorb, the mind is unable to remember virtue and non-virtue, and the link of renewed existence has already come about. In this way, clinging afflicts transmigrating beings because it prepares for the next life in samsara. So arhats have many karmic seeds that have the potential to bring a rebirth, but these cannot ripen because arhats have eliminated craving and clinging. Okay, so they're not seeking another rebirth. They're not attached to that. So the karma that they have for other rebirths cannot ripen. So in that way, they're no longer reborn in samsara, not because they've purified all the karma, but because the cooperative conditions for the karma to ripen are now no longer existent. Okay. In the bardo, someone who, who will be reborn as a human being sees the sperm and ovum of her parents, mistakenly believes the parents are in union, and craves and clings to be there. So that, you know, is somehow afflicted craving and clinging. Yeah, but it's not non-virtuous. I think it would be neutral. Clinging to the fertilized ovum, the person wants to be in that body and not to lose it. The consciousness enters the fertilized ovum, creating a mass that is conducive for the arising of the cognitive faculties. Okay? So that when it uh, enters into the ovum, that's when we have 3B, yeah, the second half of the, of the uh, third link consciousness. And then after that, you're going to have name and form. And then you're going to have the six... Uh, Six sense sources and feeling and so on. Okay. 
Clinging can nourish a karmic potency at other times of our life, frequently generating the aspiration to be reborn with a precious human life helps to nourish the karmic seeds on our mind stream that will bring this about. Okay, so that's why we, you know, don't just say once, oh, I want a precious human life. You know, we dedicate for it often, whatever, you know. Okay, and you can dedicate for full awakening, and as a byproduct of that, you get a precious human life. Okay. But I think it's still good to remember to aim for a precious human life, you know, just so at the time of death, that or or, a pure land. And then in addition, dedicate for full awakening. Okay, karmic seeds may be nourished by other means as well. If we have created the karma for a precious human life, all the other virtuous activities we do in life, making prostrations and offerings, studying and practicing the Dharma, help to nourish that potency. Okay? So it's not making it instantly go into the tenth link, but it's, you know, you create more virtue. And so if you have uh, the karma for oppression, human life, the more virtue you create in that life, the more you're nourishing that virtuous karma to have a good life, a good rebirth. Okay. The craving and clinging that arise while we are actively dying are not a manifest thought, I want this in the future, that is formed with effort. Okay, it's not this conscious kind of thing, you know. You're not sitting there on a cloud looking down saying, okay, uh, let's see, do I want to be reborn to you or to you or to you? Uh, Please send in your applications, I'll look them over, and then, you know, we'll all decide where I'm going to be reborn. It's not like that, okay? Yeah. I mean, when you fall asleep, do you see how when you fall asleep, how your mind sometimes starts thinking really weird things that seem very normal? Yeah? Yeah? I mean, you have these images of very strange things. And people relating or, you know, whatever it is, they're relating in some kind of strange way. But it's like... You're in a different society where the rules of behavior are different. And so that looks just really normal that people act like that or that things fall up or instead of falling down or that, you know, who knows? But you know what I mean? Yeah, when you catch yourself. Yeah, so it's like that. That kind of image comes to the mind and it's just like, well, this makes sense. And yeah, it looks okay, I guess. So that, you know. Okay. Craving and clinging are innate. Ordinary beings experience them while they are dying, whether or not they believe in rebirth. So taking rebirth does not depend on whether you believe that you're going to be reborn or not. 
just like rat poison will kill you if you drink it, whether you believe it will or not. Okay. So some people think, oh, if I don't believe in rebirth, I won't get reborn. Mm. No, doesn't work that way. Okay. In general, four types of clinging may arise during our lifetimes. So the first is clinging to sense pleasures and desirable objects. Again, again, how often do they have to remind us that we do this? Yeah, have you noticed? Yeah, that this comes again and again in Buddhist teachings, craving and clinging to sense objects. Yeah, I know, I know. No, we don't know. We're totally out to lunch. That's why they have to tell us again and again. So clinging to sense pleasures and desirable objects arises easily for us beings in the desire realm. That's why it's called the desire realm, by the way. And it dominates our lives. One of our cognitive faculties contacts an object that sparks the experience of pleasure or happiness. Attachment arises, followed by clinging to the pleasant feeling and the object that triggers it. Yeah. We're actually clinging to the feeling, but we, th- we think that the feeling exists in the object, and so that's why we, we cling to the object. You know, why do you cling to chocolate? Yeah, well, because we think that inside that little bar, there is happiness. Yeah, it's not that chocolate causes, chocolate is just material, organic, organic material. We don't think, oh, this is just organic material. Yeah. But that makes chocolate sound boring, doesn't it? You know, just organic material. No, we think inside it is the happiness. So that when the chocolate tastes, touches my tongue, you know, the happiness transfers from the chocolate to my tongue. Yep. Yeah. So that's why we get attached to the object. Yeah. The object is only the condition for the experience of pleasure. Yeah. But we think that the pleasure actually exists in that. In the same way, we we think that the pain exists in, in the object, too. Like when somebody criticizes you, it's like the pain is in those sound waves. Yeah, the pain I experience when somebody bosses me around or somebody tells me off or whatever. Yeah, the pain is in that person's mouth somewhere. And then their tongue moves, and the pain transfers to those sound waves. And there it is. It's coming. And then those sound waves hit my ears. And oh!
That's the way it seems, doesn't it? Yeah. Now, when this thing blasts you, you know, that is the sound wave causing the un- the unpleasant feeling in your ear. Okay. But when the words come, there's nothing bad or unpleasant in those words. And sometimes people say them in the nicest, sweetest, kindest word way. Yeah. I hate your guts, darling. No, they don't do it that way. But, you know, okay. So we think the pain is right there in the sound waves. Okay. So one of our cognitive faculties contacts an object that sparks the experience of pleasure or happiness. Attachment arises, followed by clinging to the pleasant feeling and the object that triggered it. Beings in the form and formless realms have suppressed clinging to sense pleasure, yet clinging to the intense bliss or peace of meditative absorption still arises in them. Okay. So we go, oh, they don't have pleasure from sense objects? So why do they want to be reborn in those realms? Well, because it's much nicer, supposedly. Clinging to sensual desire lies behind most of the karma we human beings create. It motivates us to lie, cheat, backbite, and speak harshly to procure and protect the things we desire. It lies behind most of the scandals we read about. Besides harming ourselves and leading to unfortunate rebirths, it adversely affects others, even leading people to lose faith in those who occupy positions of authority and respect. True or not true? Very true. Some people who have the correct view of karma and its results want to enjoy sense pleasures in future lives. So there's this story of the couple, uh, a couple, married couple in the Bali Canon. Uh, and they asked the Buddha how to attain heavenly rebirths or how to meet that spouse again in a future life. Because they were so happily married in this life's They've wanted to be married in their future lives. Wow. Have you ever met anybody like that? (laughs) Anyway, so this is a one-off case. (laughs) Yeah. So the Buddha taught ethical conduct, generosity, and kindness, you know, that said to practice those three, which they happily practiced to attain their goal. Yeah. Wow. I wonder when you meet them in their next life, I guess they're going to be younger so they look better than when you die. You know, I mean, because when when they die, you're, you're not so attracted to them again. Although some people are. 
I had a friend who um, worked as a nurse's aide in a hospital in Israel. And she told me that there was one man that she was helping to take care of who, you know, he, he was really in bad shape. And he smelled and he was just, yeah, he was in bad shape. And his wife would come in to visit him and she would just say, isn't he wonderful? Isn't he beautiful? I mean, she looked at him and that's what she saw. Yeah, amazing. But again, not so often. Yeah. Okay, then cling, the second uh, clinging that could arise during our lifetime is clinging to views. So this clings to the view of extremes. Um, the view, of, it clings to a few views. The view of extremes, okay? The view holding wrong views as supreme and wrong views, especially the wrong view disparaging karma and its effects, the existence of past and future lives and so forth. Okay? So clinging to views, yeah, there's a, you can choose your variety, you know, the kind of view you want to cling to during your life. And we cling to views all the time. I mean, yeah, Q is my hero. Anything Q says, yeah. Or you, you hear somebody say something and, you know, remember the other day I was saying that, um, People tend to follow what other people do more than they follow a belief or an ideology. Well, today I read something about some psychologists who did uh, a test on that. And they had, uh, it was quite a big test with a lot of people. And people came in and they were in little pods, you know, small groups of people, and they were listening to songs. And you could, uh, you know, uh, click to replay the songs that, that you like. So you were sitting together, so you saw what the other people in your pod were clicking on. And they found that when, um, like, the first person... Uh, in, in the pod made a click on something that that usually became the favorite song that everybody thereafter happened to click on. Yeah. Interesting, huh? Yeah. It's like people, yeah, well, that person thinks that's good. So I follow along and I think that's good. So if you do it about songs, you know, people do it about beliefs too. And that's why the Buddha is always telling us to investigate, to analyze, you know, to don't just say, well, my friends are Buddhists, so I am too. Because that that's, you know, when push comes to shove, that's not going to work. Um, they, they cling to clinging to wrong, wrong views as supreme. And they also cling to wrong views in general. I guess you would first cling to wrong views in general and then clinging to them afterwards as supreme. You know, and that's when we get really entrenched with what we believe in. Yeah. And if what we believe in is, you know, some f- 
far out something that's really nutty, we can get really attached to it. Okay? Um, and so here it's pointing out especially the wrong view that disparages karma and its effects, the existence of past and future lives, the existence of the three jewels. Yeah? So if you're a, a materialist, let's say a scientific materialist, I don't believe, you know, the mind is, well, I believe the mind is an emergent prop property of the brain. Don't ask me what that means. After you die, there's absolutely nothing, you know, so I don't know why you people are making such a big deal about past and future lives. There's just nothing, you know, and, and that definitely is the view of an intelligent person like me. Now, and people think like that. I thought about that like that at one time in my life. You know, after I threw God out, I became very nihilistic. It's like, yeah, nothing happens after death. You know, I had never heard about karma, so I couldn't negate it. Okay, so clinging to views easily leads to dogmatism. Attachment to one's own religion, you know, like the kind of people who are trying to convert you all the time. Attachment to your political belief. Yeah. And look what, what happens. It's so interesting. I really want to know some of the people, like the people who say, I, you know, January 6th was just a, a, a peaceful protest. I want to know, do they really believe that? Have they said that? Have they heard it? You know, because you listen, you pick out who you want to listen to, and you hear those things said over and over and over and over, and then, you know, do those people believe it? Even they're, they're sitting in Congress. Or are they just saying it for their own political benefit? I don't know. I'm quite curious. Yeah. Okay. So clinging to views easily leads to dogmatism, attachment to one's own religion, and denigration of other religions to the extent that one forces religious views on others, either by verbal coercion or threats of violence. And that has happened throughout history. And so many people have died because of that. Okay. So we have time for a couple of questions. Yeah. I have two questions. Mm-hmm. Um, in the previous page, it's talking about um, when the human being sees a sperm and ovum of her parents, it says mistakenly believes the parents are in union. Why is mistakenly there? Yeah, I was thinking about that too. It it may be because the union hasn't happened yet. And some texts say that the consciousness enters the sperm in the male and then goes with the sperm into the womb. So maybe it, it needs to get to the male first, before, you know. Oh. So I always, I had heard before that the, being it sees the parents in union. Yes, you know, I've heard that too. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I don't know. 
I'm there's two different I've heard two different things. So you can ask maybe somebody who knows for sure. <laughs> okay. I have no idea. And then I was wondering if your only motivation is sense pleasure for doing something, is that always non-virtuous? In our life, I would say yes. So like Yeah. In let <laughs> Yeah, there are maybe a few exceptions. They have some exceptions for bodhisattvas and and so on, but for ordinary beings. So what I was thinking about is dessert. Like, the only reason I usually get dessert is because it tastes good. Mm -hmm. I've just had a very healthy, nourishing meal. Mm -hmm. I don't need any extra nutrients. So am I, like, always committing non-virtue by going for dessert. Uh, you, you look at your mind and see, you know, and there's a difference between big non-virtues and long and, and small non-virtues and like <laughs> different big pieces of, <laughs> of, uh, you know, of cheesecake and small pieces of cheesecake. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Matt, we are attachment, just that's our motto. That's what runs our life. I mean, attachment is why you even pick the plate that you're going to put your ice cream in because you want the nice, pretty plate because that gives you happiness. Yeah? Do you ever do that? Anybody, you know? You pick the plate that you like. You pick the, you know, when you're putting out cushions. Yeah. You put the kind of cushion you like by your place. Yeah. 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 Everybody has their own objective. Yeah. Uh huh. So I was wondering, is absolutism and nihilism acquired afflictions? Um, n- no. Now, grasping inherent existence is is it has innate forms and acquired acquired forms. Yeah, but um, usually when it talks about generating the the middle way view. There, it's the acquired, um, acquired absolutism and nihilism that you have to uh, tamper, yeah, tap down, in order to gain the, uh, you know, the middle way view. I've read this passage many, many times um, mm-hmm. on page, whatever it is, um, one eighty two where the person is dying and you have an illusory appearance. Mm-hmm. And so what can we do to practice for, I mean, it just seems quite frightening to think about this, that the mm-hmm. mind is at maybe its weakest point and something seems attractive. So while we're not in that place right now, how can we, re- that is a really critical moment, right? Yeah. Now. How yeah. can we yeah. prepare for this? Yeah. Constantly coming back to our practice, you know, practicing as much as we can, just even during the day, reminding ourselves to not be attached to things. Yeah. 
reaffirming the, you know, the aspiration of where we want to be reborn. And like I said, that's why if you can have another Dharma practitioner with you, you know, that's, that's very good. Of course, you don't want a whole room full of them and they're all crying. Okay. But if you, you have some good Dharma practitioners and they can help at that time. Yeah. And also, I mean, to me, it seems like just as you're going through your life, if you realize that your mind is starting, you know, there's an affliction in your mind, catching it as soon as you possibly can so that, you know, at the time you're dying, if something like that is happening, you can catch it. You know, well, I'm spending a lot of time in retreats thinking about the faults of cyclic existence and, you know, moving towards the fact of not wanting birth at all. So how yeah. how do I... Um, how do I mesh that with this idea of wanting a precious human rebirth too? Okay, you're, you're, you don't want rebirth at all, but you know it's going to take some time to uh, you know generate all the causes to uh, to cease our samsara and to get enlightened. So we want a precious human life, a rebirth in the pure land, wherever it is as a stopgap measure so that we have the opportunity to do more purification and creation of merit. So it's it's wanting it as a means to get what you really want. Um, someone's asking, can we say the following to a dying person? Let go of your body, this body is empty. Go to where the Dharma can be can be practiced. Go to the Buddha land to find your teachers and continue to practice. What does that person think? Do they think that that's something good to tell a dying person? Or is that going to adversely affect them? What do you think? What do people think? Sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah. You're speaking to a Buddhist practitioner. That's, yeah, very good thing to say. And you want to say something like that over and over and over again. Okay. <laughs> 